Welcome to the Mission Matters podcast, celebrating the people and initiatives that embody the Jesuit tradition of St. Louis University, celebrating what matters in the 200-year-old-plus mission that is St. Louis U, brought to you from the Office of Mission and Identity. Okay, so we are here today with Father Ted Vitale, who is an associate professor in the philosophy department. Welcome, Father Ted. Hi, hi, Virginia. I am just really curious to hear about yourself a little bit, about your tenure at SLU. Just start us off by talking about yourself. Well, um, I got my degree from SLU in 1976. I came here in 71. They were the only grad program that accepted me. I was too dumb to get in the the others, but SLU had mercy on me. Actually, I think if you were religious, they took you if you could breathe. So they, they took me. And then I went from SLU in 76 to 89. I went to Bowering College. One second, Lily's whining. So then I was there from 76 to 89 at Bellarmine and Lowell. But in 80 to 89, I was chairman of the department. And in 89, if you might know, I don't know if you know the history, SLU took a shellacking financially during the 70s and the early 80s, took a beating. That it survived is really a great story. They were beginning to rebuild because most of the departments had really gone down the drain really bad. In fact, we began rebuilding, but it was a tremendous need for A, new leadership, and B, hiring. So Dr. Punzo, Vincent Punzo was chair at the time. He called me in Louisville to ask me if I would nominate somebody for the chairmanship. Okay. So out of my colleague, Doug Denial, Douglas Denial, I thought he would have been an outstanding chair here. Okay. So even though I was the chair there, I thought he had the real the goods. He would do it. Started to recommend him. But then Vince said to me, why don't you apply? If he hadn't said that, I wouldn't have done it. So I applied and I got the job. So when I came to SLU, my job was to rebuild the philosophy department. And it was not only build it curricular wise, but I didn't fully realize until I got here, but was to bring the department into the mainstream. It was too parochial. I didn't realize that, obviously. It was the, it was probably one of the best Catholic philosophy departments in the country, especially the generation of, that taught us, James Collins and those people. But I think by the end of the 80s, you saw it at Notre Dame and other schools. You had to come into the mainstream without losing your Catholicity. That's the kicker. Yeah. So we began to hire faculty from outside uh, the Catholic, the, the Catholic uh, universities. So we began to hire, for instance, we hired from Cornell, that's where Eleanor Stump came from, um, Cornell, uh, Yale, etc. Okay, that would happen even before me. And Father Mike Barber was a Yale PhD, and he came under Punzo. SLU is a very Catholic university. Uh, Scott Berman's Jewish in my department, mm-hmm. and Scott's wife, Eileen, said that to me, you're Catholic. It, it is. In all of its elements, it's Catholic. It is very Catholic, and it's very Jesuit. But it's also Catholic Jesuit in its curriculum. And that's the key to this thing now, And in, in terms of the mission is not just, this, as they use the phrase, men and women for others, but it's to create citizenship in the Catholic intellectual, with a background in Catholic intellectualism. I'll put it another way, a Catholic humanism, from the depth of the Catholic intellectual uh, tradition. So it's wide, it's not pious, 
but it's an integration of faith and reason as an integration of art and humanities, the arts and humanities with the sciences. You can't have a great Catholic university without great sciences. Let me tell you that. If you're mediocre in the sciences, there's something horribly wrong. But you better be really good in theology, philosophy, history, English, art. You better be really good. And now the social scientists, the role that they play. We're in, in a sense, a community, a community of scholars. Okay? And the curriculum has to foster that. So the way I put it, we have to be talking to each other. More than a light conversation means intellectually to be talking to each other. And if we run a risk now, if I can give my two cents, the risk now is to so departmentalize each of the disciplines as we stop talking to each other. And so we become an aggregate rather than a community. That's the risk. It'll happen. I don't know. I'm not in charge anymore. But when I was in charge of 28 years, I was chair. I was glued to that. I was paying an awful lot of attention. And there was that conversation going on. I cared as much about other departments getting the hiring that they needed as I cared about my own, because I knew you, it's not a zero-sum game. Right. If somebody gets hired in physics, it's not a cost to the philosophy department. If they need it more than I do, or we do, then physics should get it. I mean, anybody knows my track record. But on the other hand, as I told one chair, don't put your hand in my pocket either. Now, I can play rough, too. We're all in the same thing together. Then we're going to have an ongoing organic conversation which the sciences and the arts and humanities are in concert with each other. As an old-fashioned jazz musician, we, we improvise as we play the themes. We improvise the theme. Depends on who's in the band. Anyway, that's my thought. So how have you, th- how have you seen things changing over all those years, either for the good or for the bad? For the good, I don't think the departments have ever been better than they are now. Hmm. In what I way? The professionalism the commitment to scholarship and research. You can't have a university without research, you know? We're not a teaching institution. We're a research teaching institution. And research is the top of the thing. It drives us. We're not a college. We're a university. And I think we are fully committed to that. I see that as very strong. If there's a weakness, and I think, if I see a diminishment or a weakness, I don't think the conversation's going on that I just described. And I think we have become from my perception, I'm not there anymore, but I'm giving the impression that that the collaborative mindset may be weakening between the departments and vis-a-vis the vision, how we all together as a community implement a vision, a humanism. Do you have a sense of what's contributing to that or what is the weather that is making that happen? I can give you two reasons. One is the one that I advanced over the years, and that is the more and more of hiring a faculty who are expert in their fields, but have no concept of the Jesuit Catholic mission, mm-hmm. not naturally conversant with it. And so they have to be taught it, and yet they're the leaders. That's the problem. But also I, what I saw, forget it, whatever it's worth, the difference 20 years ago, I never had to worry about student-faculty ratios. I didn't have to worry about student credit hours. All Father Biondi wanted was that we be first rate. Yeah. When you want to be first rate, you reduce the number of student teacher hours or student hours, and you increase the range of research. You energize that faculty. You don't wear them out. I noticed my first, uh, toward the end of my tenure, there was a lot of emphasis on um, credit hours taught. Mm-hmm. And that's a shift in ethos. It's a shift in the ethos of the institution. I understood it. 
you're running a cost-benefit ratio. I think the danger of that is when you have an opportunity to advance scholarship, you may you may back off of it if you're a chair or a direct a dean to make sure that the numbers work as opposed to looking and giving somebody a run for the roses. How fast can that pony go? You see? I'll give you another example of it. Okay. This is the John Kenneth Galbraith's New Industrial State. He wrote it in 1970, roughly, I think. I used to teach this stuff. We moved from entrepreneurship to management, and that's a very different model, but it's also an essential change. You can only go entrepreneurship so long. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can only have so many cowboys like me gambling all over the place with your teachers and this and that. On the line, you have to have order on your ship. And I think we have now, from what I can tell, uh, an accountability system that is certainly, it was needed. Both administrations were necessary at their times. And I was part of the beyond the administration, which was wildly entrepreneurial, but it couldn't have lasted. Hmm. Okay, and nor should it have. I think with Dr. Postello and uh, deanships, et cetera, provostships and deanships, et cetera, it's management at a very sophisticated level of management. It's nature of the beast. This is what happens. So can you imagine or predict or even um, prophesy for a way forward to make sure that the siloing doesn't happen or doesn't become so extreme that we start to lose authenticity? It's a great question, but I think You'd have to you'd have to go to the chairs to ask that question. I'm not in a position to know the dynamics anymore. And when you're out, you're out. But I think right now, give my two cents without knowing any details, is this: uh, SLU is in transition now. It will define its future in the next five or six years. It will define the next epoch, what it wants to look like. When you look at the general leadership, there's a deep commitment to Catholicity and to the Jesuit mission. There's a commitment to it in many, many ways that have impact the whole campus. So, so in that sense, I don't think it's going to get lost. The only thing I'm afraid that could happen is we lose the curricular element of it, the educational element and in, in the actual interfacing of the various disciplines, talking to each other, creating a humanistic education in a very direct sense. With a philosopher from Oxford told me when I got the job here in 89, Richard Swinburne, a friend of mine, he said, Ted, you can't lead from the bottom, build from the bottom up, you have to build from the top down, okay? What that means is you have to be striving for excellence, not demographics. The, the demographics will chase the excellence, not the other way around. You don't have to market anything. Just be excellent and the people will come to you. And I, I believe we have that here at SLU. I think and we have a base for it because we have significant amount of money committed to endowed chairs, which is where you recruit your top dogs around the world in every discipline. And they become the intellectual powerhouses that are the top pulling the bottom up, okay? And, and they're the ones who draw, first of all, grad students from around the world, but grad students become part of the community that encourages undergrads. You have a community of excellence, top down, and it shows up when the kids graduate. It shows when they go to grad school, when they get a PhD, they get hired. Yeah. Because they've been trained by the best in the world. Yeah. So you recruit the best to draw the best. And I believe that. And I put my money where my mouth is. I asked my order if I could change the recipient for my, um, what's it called? Uh, my retirement. Yeah, I got two million bananas in there, okay? 
I asked permission of my order if I could divert that so that upon my death, the order wouldn't receive the two million, the university does, the college does, the philosophy department. So there's the Vitali chair of philosophy right now that Dan Haber, who's a absolute first rate ethicist, he's got it. That's putting your money where your mouth is. This would be stupid on my part if I actually thought that SLU was not going to live up to its mission. I certainly believe it, but I'm going to also help it to happen. I'll be dead in the ground, but that chair will draw top talent from the world. Right. That'll draw top grad students. Gotta believe in the I say I grew up in New Haven, right under right at Yale, okay? And you couldn't miss the fact of what excellent looked like. Now I tried to get into Yale and they said, no, don't call us, we'll call you. In fact, two two guys that were on the committee, they became pals of mine. One of them, Miklos Veto. I started yelling, why is Matt not good enough for you? I wouldn't accept him either, okay? I don't know why the hell slew did, nobody else did, Notre Dame did, none of them did. And I said, the only way I ever got into Yale, my friend Al and I tried to steal a provolone cheese that was hanging out the window of one of the dorms. <laughs> we, in high school, we, we, we did everything we could to get in that guy's dorm to steal that cheese. Huh. Okay, so let me ask you this. Over the years, where have you seen the intersection of your passionist charism and the Jesuit mission? I knew you were going to ask me that. I thought a little bit about it. Um, well, because I think liberal education, liberal arts education, Jesuit education is the form of wisdom. Is to, is to begin to formulate and form young people into a wisdom, an ongoing wisdom. In my view, as a passionist, there is no wisdom apart from the cross. Mm. And the reason is life is too bitter and too tragic. There's no schmaltz out there. You've got to look life in the face. I teach this stuff to my kids. I showed them a movie just this past week, The Pawnbroker, uh, Rod Steiger, the survivor from the Holocaust who lost his family. And it's his story of his recovery, 1965. Oh, okay. It was his... Uh, Saul, Saul Nazarman recovers his humanity, and I show him how brutal it is. But the point is, where, where's the meaning of life? Where you, you're, where's your humanism when such horrors occur? You have to have more than human than than just human and historic and, and cultural values. You've got to have something so much more radical than that. And what I today in my class, I said uh, we showed in the movie Saul's redemption as he recovers his humanity. I said, what happened? What about his wife and his two daughters? It's the son and daughter who were gassed two hours after they captured her. Where's the redemption there? See? And I said, life has no meaning if there isn't the redemption of the victim. Not just the survivor, but the victim. And what I said to him, and I apologize, I know, but what I said to him, I believe in Good Friday. Paul says in the letter to the Colossians, we fill up those things wanting in the suffering of Christ. I said, when I see the the horrors of this world, and I don't blink, I look at them. I think there has to be more. Human wisdom alone can't do it. You have to see the transformative power of the cross itself to take what is dead and make it alive by being dead. Christ redeems on Good Friday and redeem on Easter Sunday. It's Good Friday and it never ends. And so as a passionist, I bring that to discussion of the wisdom of the world. I love the wisdom of the world. I love, I love being a philosopher. I'm not a theologian, but I am a religious man, and I am a passionist. Said I spent the last 60-something years, 63 years of my life, contemplating the suffering of Christ, which is the suffering of humanity. It's not without 
essence, not without power, the redemption of humankind, you see? So I think my passion to spirituality increases, as it were, the message, the ministry, and the, the mission of the university. Definitely. I take it one step further, but I do it because I, I believe I'm passionate. <laughs> Somebody stuck an SJ after my name and said, hey, get it off of there. The two most fatal mistakes people make at the universities put SJ after my name. I said, they wouldn't have taken me to wash the floors and get that out. And then they misspell my name, put an E at the end instead of an I. Oh, dear. Yeah. And I said, that's the mob. I said, we're Tuscans. We're high class. We're snobs. They gave you the Godfather. We gave you Michelangelo. Have you gotten back to Italy? A few times. Um, My my father bought a home in Italy for his parents 100 years ago. And it stayed in the family. And I told my brother, I said, Pete, I think we own a house in Tuscany. And I was there. And my aunt and uncle owned it. And they're both dead without children. So I said, and they knew us. They came to my graduation here. So I said, Pete, we ought to get our ass over there and see who's in our house. There was a, a young woman who graduated from SLU a few years ago, Sunita Chan. Okay, Sunita decides she's going to go to Pontamazzi to check out my house. Believe it, she did. She said, it's 26. Number 26, Pontamazzi. She goes, she says, for sure, Father Vitali, somebody's living in the house. I said, it better be a cousin. <laughs> I'm going to go knock on the door, Sola Vitali. Where's the casa, mia casa? <laughs> oh, my heavens. Yeah, that's the truth. All right. Well, take a minute. And what do you want to say to the SLU community at large about living the Jesuit mission? Well, make it very simple. It, it gave me, that mission gave me my professional life. And in return, I gave it $2 million. I believe in this thing. And I think they should believe in it too. It's a noble institution and it has a noble commitment. And the Jesuits are at the very heart and soul of it. Believe in them, believe in it, you'll be fine. You will not be believing in vain. I didn't look at me and I put my money where my mouth is. All righty. Let me know if you hear any scandal that comes from this, okay? I will. I will. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Bye now. And for all of you listening, don't forget to follow us on social media at SLU Jesuit Mission on both Facebook and Instagram. And if you know of a colleague who's living the mission out loud, but seems to be hidden in plain sight, give us a heads up so we can highlight the good work being done here in our community. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, in this year of hope, let's continue to celebrate together the gift of walking with youth in the creation of a hope-filled future. Because mission matters. You can engage the mission intentionally here at SLU, and you can encounter it randomly. But good luck graduating without ever touching it in some way. God bless everyone.